0: Chapter 15 of Serapion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John Brandon. Serapion by Francis Stevens. Chapter 15 Bad Days. But had my desired obsession, or familiar or haunting ghost, really desired to help? he might have warned me, definitely, of Sabina Castle. Alicia did not appear at the inquest. She was ill and under a physician's care. Her semi-conscious state, as reported by him, prevented even the taking of a deposition. I did not, however, stand alone as star witness before the coroner's jury. Sabina Castle, Mrs. Moore's old-colored mammy, whom she had brought north with her from Virginia, "'shared, and rather more than shared, the honors with me. "'They had taken pains that Nils and I should not meet. "'He was kept rigorously incommunicado till the inquest. "'No one save the police and the district attorney having access to him. "'At the inquest I caught only a glimpse of him, "'when he was led out past where I awaited my turn before the jury.' "'Involuntarily I sprang up only to be caught by a constable's hand "'while Nils was hustled on out. "'As he went he threw me a glance "'that was a burning, dictatorial command. "'I obeyed it. "'I told the jury exactly that story "'which Nils's letter had outlined for us both. "'There was tempered steel in Burquist. "'I could be sure that no long-drawn torment of inquisition could make him vary a hair's breadth from the line he had set for us to follow. In my testimony which preceded Sabina's, I explained what Nils had objected to my interest in spiritualism, fostered by a single previous visit to the Moore's place, that he wished me to leave the house with him, and that Alicia also had seemed set against my remaining, that an argument ensued, at the height of which Moore became very angry and excited, shouted, I'll settle with you once for all, and came round the table toward Berquist. He grasped Berquist's arm, I said. When my friend tried to free himself, Moore snatched the the file from the table. I saw Berquist seize Moore's wrist. They struggled a moment, and then Moore staggered away with his hands to his face. Then he fell down. Berquist called to me, and— No, I had not tried to interfere. It all happened too quickly. There wasn't time. After Berquist wrenched the file from Moore's hand, I don't believe he struck it Moore. I think the file was driven into his eye by accident. That surmise, of course, was struck from the record— but I had said it, at least, and hoped it impressed the jury. Afterward, the the sight of blood and the suddenness of it all turned me sick. No, my recollections were clear up to that time. And so forth. It was a straight story. I knew it agreed to a hair with Nils's confession. What I did not, could not know, was that it varied in what essential detail from an entirely different confession, a confession made by a person whom we had not considered as an even possible eyewitness, and whose very existence I at least had forgotten. Given that a second eyewitness existed, one would have supposed that the disagreement would have been over the slayer's identity. It was not. By a curious trick of fate, Sabina Castle, Alicia's old colored maid, did undoubtedly see me strike more down, and yet, not through such a supernormal illusion as caused me to kill more, but in a perfectly natural manner, she had confused Berquist's identity with mine. She related as having been done by Burquist that which had been done by me. In one detail only did Sabina's testimony conflict with ours, but that was the kind of detail which would hang a man if its truth were established. She had seen me, Berquist by her own account, snatch the file from the table and strike Moore, and she had seen me do it on no further provocation than the laying of Moore's hand on my arm. The fifth presence was right, when he foretold that Nils would be indicted. And yet though things had indeed gone ill for Nils at the inquest, I did not at once carry out my expressed intention and substitute myself for him as defendant. I didn't wish to die, nor spend years in prison. I wanted to live and have a decent, straight, pleasant future ahead, such as I had been brought up to expect as a right. It seemed to me that just one way lay open. Though Nils was now entirely at my mercy, only his untrammeled acquittal would give me the moral freedom to keep silent. For that a first-class lawyer was a sine qua non. Berquist was practically penniless, and the barber exchequer, in not much better state. Here again, however, friendship came to the fore in a curiously impressive manner. For the sake of an old acquaintance and some ancient friendly claim that my father had on him, none other than Helidor Marx, took Berquist's case. I mean Helidor Marx, of Marx, Marx, and Orlo, who could have termed himself Marx the Famous, and not lied. I remember my first interview with him, after Dad had, to me almost incredibly, persuaded him into alliance. My first impression was of a mild-looking, smallish man with a scrubby mustache. HE HAD HURT THE TOP OF HIS BALD HEAD IN SOME WAY, SO THAT IT WAS CROSSED WITH A FAIR-SIZED HILLOCK OF ADHESIVE PLASTER. I THOUGHT THAT ADDED TO HIS INSIGNIFICANT APPEARANCE, BUT HE HAD THE BRIGHTEST, SOFTLY BROWN EYES I HAVE EVER SEEN, AND AFTER THE FIRST FEW MINUTES I WAS AFRAID OF HIM. I WAS AFRAID THAT I WOULD TELL HIM TOO MUCH. My confidence, however, proved not the easily uprooted kind of a common criminal, and for Nils the acquisition of this famous insignificant-looking lawyer gave me the only real hope of assurance I had through those bad days. "'Your friend,' Marks had said to me, "'is a rather wonderful young man, Barber. "'I can't blame you for being troubled.' "'He was the kind of intelligence,' that would make a legal genius of him if he had turned his efforts to that direction, a wonderful intelligence, and all lost in a maze of impractical theorizing and the sort of dreams that can't come true so long as men are men and women are women. God help us all. He shan't go to the chair nor prison either. He's my man, my case, and yes, I'll say my friend though I don't run to sudden enthusiasms. Leave Berquist to me. Evidently Marx's consultations with his case had not been kept within strictly professional bounds. I smiled involuntarily. I could picture that long dark face of Nils lighting to alert interest as he discovered that Marx was not merely the lawyer who might save him from martyrdom, but also a thinking man. He must have brought out a side of the little man that was kept carefully submerged at ordinary times. I am sure that few people had seen Helidor Marx inclined to dilatory wanderings in philosophy, such as Nils loved. But I went out with a lighter heart and more optimism than I had carried in some time. Marx, with his, My man, my case, my friend, had instilled a confidence which remained with me all that day. I had returned to the bank, for though I walked in the valley of the shadow, while I could walk, I must work. So Mr. Turn had me back again, and it was a very good thing that I had Mr. Turn to go back to. Not many men would have put up with the abstracted attention my work received, nor patiently picked up the slack of details I let go by me. His patience had a characteristic reason behind it, which I was sure of from the minute he told me about poor Van. The latter, it seemed, had really gone the step too far with his father in the affair of Mr. Turn's four hundred. Van Siddharth, Sr. would let no one speak of his son to him after that day. Every Everyone in the bank, however, knew that he had quarrelled with him, disowned him, and that Van, in a fit of temper, had refused the offer of a last-money settlement—a couple of thousand only, it was said—flung out of the Colossus, and walked off, leaving the grey roadster forlorn by the curb. No one knew where Van had gone after that. He had simply vanished, saying no goodbyes, byes taking nothing with him but the clothes he wore. Mr. Turn felt guilty because it was his complaint— which had caused the final rupture. He liked me anyway, but having as he believed ruined Van, he showed an added consideration for me, which developed into an almost absurd tenderness for my feelings. He needed that, if I was to be kept on the tracks at all those days. I was nervous as a cat, ready to jump at the creak of a door. Roberta would watch me with wide, troubled eyes, and because a question was in them, I would grow irritable and fling off and leave her with almost brutal abruptness. And always she forgave me, till I came near wishing she would forgive less easily. Kathy resented my new irritability with the merciless justice of a sister. Mother endured my anxiety for Nils only because it proved... I was like dear Serapion, and Dad harped on his pride in me for standing by, till I really dreaded to go near him. And as for the fifth presence, he remained detestably faithful. Several times I explained to him that if Nils were not cleared, I intended to confess. When he only continued to smile, I ceased talking to him. He still came, however, and on the very night before the trial opened, the last thing of which I was conscious, dropping asleep, was his smooth, persuasive, hateful, silent voice. As ever it was expressing the platitudinous and always subtly evil advice, to which habit had so accustomed me, that it had grown very hard indeed to distinguish his speech from my thoughts. End of chapter 15. Recording by John Brandon.